Thanks for watching today at wildwoodchurch.com. Now here's today's message. Good morning, church. Turn your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8, verses 26 through 28. In this sermon, I hope to forever change how you think about suffering. That's kind of a tall order. I understand that. But that's my aim. That's my goal. And, and I believe that the Lord will do it through his word. But while you're turning there and before we jump into it, I'm sure that on many of your hearts is questions about Israel. And I don't have a prepared sermon on Israel. That's not what the Lord prepared me for this week. Uh, but we cannot deny that what is happening in Israel is significant. At the very least, a country is going to war. At the very least, the nation of Israel is preparing and, and could, I was expecting to wake up to it this morning, a full scale ground invasion to the Gaza Strip. And there will be tragic, war is tragic. All war is tragic. I believe it's a justified war. I believe that Israel is justified in retaliating in, in defending itself as any country would be if attacked the way it was. You think about the United States and the September 11th attack where we lost, I thought it was 3,000, I heard it was 2,000, so it's somewhere between, I thought it was 3,000 people and we have 350 million people. If we were to extrapolate that based on the 9 million people that live in Israel, that would be 45,000 people that they lost last Saturday. This is hugely significant. War is tragic. Many people will die. Many innocent people, in the sense of they're not combatants, will die. And frankly, many more will die because Hamas are cowards, they're demonic, they're evil and they hide behind civilians. And civilians will die because of it. We, we shouldn't lose sight of the tragedy of this. At the very least, this is going to be a tragedy and has already been a tragedy. But then we think about Israel and we think about end times. And we think about what is happening in Israel is hugely important to, to the end of the world. Jesus is going to come back and he's going to stand on the Mount of Olives in Israel. This is going to be hugely significant. What, what happens in Israel is hugely significant. And when you start talking about Iran threatening, and Iran biblically is Persia, and you look at the connection between Iran and Russia, which is Gog and Magog, scripturally, and you look at the connection between Russia and China and all of these powers from the north and then the connections politically with, with connections in, uh, in Egypt from the south, you start to see biblical prophecy, at least it looks as though biblical prophecy could be unfolding. I saw that something like 20% of all Americans believe that Jesus is going to come back in our lifetime. I'm one of those 20, 20%. However, and, and praise the Lord, yeah, right? We should, we should long for Jesus to come. We should be asking him to come back. But we don't know if this is what it was, if this is what's happening. 
I'm certain that when Hitler invaded France and was annihilating the Jews, that people were wondering, this, this must be the time that Jesus is coming back. Uh, the people that read Paul's letter to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago thought, any time, Lord. The destruction of Jerusalem, I mean, there have been countless episodes where the people look and say, God, this must be the final straw. Now, there are some things that would make us particularly unique. We, we are the first generation that can say that the whole world can see what is happening at the same time. And that is biblical prophecy that everyone will see. Uh, before really the advent of the internet and live streaming and phones in every hand, that would be hard to, to see that if Jesus comes down in one particular place uh, for the whole world to see. We are, the, we are a living generation that has seen Israel become a state again since 70 A.D. that came into being in 1948, I believe. And so, I, yeah, we're unique. I, I feel like there are some things that are, are in place that are necessary. Uh, and so my feelers are up. But perhaps this passage that we're going to look at today is the most appropriate thing as we think about the coming of Jesus Christ. And that is how do we endure suffering? Because the Bible talks about there's going to be birth pangs and there's going to be more frequency in earthquakes and, and disasters and wars and famines. And there's going to be all kinds of, of, of like contractions. And they're going to get closer. Think about the imagery here. Some, uh, some of this I'm working out right here in front of you, okay? But think about the illustration of birth pangs. We, we read about this last week and we are anticipating the glory that's coming, the revealing of the sons of God, our adoption as sons, and, and we're waiting for that. We're waiting for Jesus' return, and, and Paul describes it as birth pangs. And, and what, moms, what do we know about birth pangs? What? Well, they do eventually stop, that's true. <laughs> that's a great way to think about that. But they get more intense, and they get closer together the closer you are to the birth, right? And so if that's the illustration that the Lord used to describe the end times and the, and the suffering that we're going to endure, then what we should anticipate is, yeah, the pain's going to stop eventually, but we're going to be ramping up, and, and it's going to get more intense and more uh, close together. And so how we endure suffering is hugely important because what we want is to be found faithful when the Lord comes. Amen? Amen? Uh, you've heard me say this before, that I'm a pan-millennialist. It's all going to pan out. I'm not going to set my flag on any particular eschatology. Jesus is going to come back, and he's going to rule and reign, and I'm going to be with him. Are you? Amen. Amen. All right. So let's read here Romans 8, 26 through 28. Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do, not, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, 
because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Before I pray, one, we're going to pray for Israel. We're going to pray for uh, the, the whole situation. Uh, I also want to pray for Pastor Ron, who left about six and a half years ago. He was here on staff for about 30 years. Uh, he lives in Kansas City, and he informed us that he's got a serious medical uh, situation going on. And I don't know the full details of it, but I want to intercede for him and ask you to, to join with me. Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you, Lord, that, that there is hope, that the suffering will, in fact, stop. Uh, but, Lord, while we wait for that, while we wait for the, the second coming of Christ eagerly, and we eagerly await the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, suffering is going to intensify. And, Lord, it's my heart, and I hope it's all of our hearts, that we would suffer well, that we would endure to the end, that we would honor you. Lord, right now I pray for Israel. I pray for Palestinian uh, civilians. Lord, this is a tragic situation. And it's very confusing. And it's awful. And I pray, Lord, that you would rule and reign. Lord, almost none of these people know Jesus. And many of them will die. I pray that you would open their eyes. They are there where Jesus walked. And they cannot see it. And I pray that you would open their eyes to their only hope in life and death. Jesus Christ, our Lord. And Lord, I pray for Pastor Ron. I don't know his medical situation, but I know that you do. I pray that you would intercede on his behalf. I pray that your will be done in his life. I pray for healing in his body. And I pray that you would be glorified. In Jesus' holy name, we pray. Amen. Paul begins here in verse 26 with likewise. Likewise points us back. I don't think it points us back to verse 25. I think it points us back to the previous mention of the activity of the Holy Spirit. Because here in verse 26, he's going to talk about what the Holy Spirit does. Previously, he was talking about what we do and what we're doing as we wait for uh, the redemption of our bodies, his return. But Paul is talking about what the Holy Spirit does. So if we go back, if we look back up to what was the last thing that Paul said the Holy Spirit does, we find that in verse 16 and 17 where the Holy Spirit works in our hearts to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He reminds us of who we are in Christ, and likewise, the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. The Spirit helps us in our weakness in many ways. We've already read, even just here in chapter 8, that by him we put to death the deeds of the body. That's verse 13. We read that he sets us free from the law of sin and death, verse 2. He gives life to our mortal bodies, that's verse 11. And here we have another way that the Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness, and specifically, it is through intercession. Verse 26 continues. 
For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So remember from last week, from the previous passage, all creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. Keep that idea in your mind. All of creation is groaning together in the pains of childbirth. He also said, we also groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. That's verse 22 and 23. And now we read that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So creation groans, we groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. So Paul uses the same language to describe how the Holy Spirit intercedes for us, the same language as what we experience in our suffering. I think that that what Paul wants to display here is that the Holy Spirit resonates with us. The Holy Spirit empathizes with us. The Holy Spirit feels what we feel. He knows what we feel. This is contrary to the idea that God is dispassionate and disconnected and distant. No, our God is close and affectionate and empathetic. And the Holy Spirit is in self praying for us. The Holy Spirit is not simply an empathetic ear, though that would be tremendous, knowing that you have a divine counselor. But he goes beyond that. He's not only listening to us, he is in fact praying for us and taking our needs directly to the throne of God, or dare I say, to the heart of God. Paul says we do not know what to pray for as we ought That's the content of our prayers. We don't know what to say. Jesus taught us how to pray the Lord's Prayer. He gave us a simple structure of prayer. Sometimes we don't know how to put words into the structure. We don't know how to formulate the content of our prayers. There are times when we are in such despair and agony and confusion and frustration and anger that we don't even know what to say. Anyone been there? All we can say is, Lord, help. Have you ever prayed that? Lord, help. I don't know what else to say, Lord. All I can say is help. I just need you. It's in those moments that we can count on the fact that the Holy Spirit is, in fact, interceding for us with groanings too deep for words. What a beautiful thing that we don't have to, we don't have to articulate. Think about selling a business. I, I like to watch Shark Tank. Any of you Shark Tank fans? Imagine going into Shark Tank and you've got to do the perfect pitch and you've got to convince these sharks to invest in your business. And it can go sideways in a moment. Imagine if we had to go before the Lord with the perfect pitch to, to, to perfectly illustrate exactly what we need to happen and where we're at and how we understand things. Now, sometimes all we can do is say, Lord, help. And it's in those times that we know that the Holy Spirit is interceding on our behalf. Verse 27 says, And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
Who is it that searches hearts? Who is Paul referring to? Well, that's God the Father. God knows what is the mind of the Spirit because it is His Spirit. God knows what the Spirit is thinking instantly. And and I would argue that when Paul says that that God God knows the, the thoughts of the Spirit, what is the mind of the Spirit, he also accepts what the Spirit is praying for us. I, I get that because of the word because. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. It would be impossible for the Spirit of God to pray contrary to the will of God. He would contradict himself. He would no longer be the Holy Spirit of God. But there is complete unity. So when the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf, and when he takes our needs to the Father, we know that, the Holy, that, that, that God the Father who searches hearts not only knows what the Spirit is thinking, but accepts what the Spirit is thinking. Because he prays according to the will of God. There is total agreement. Now what is incredible, though it's not mentioned here, is that Jesus also intercedes for us. Did you know this? That Jesus intercedes for us. Hebrews 7.25 says, Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God. That, that, that concept, he is able to save to the uttermost, means he is able to save completely, without exception, finally, fully. That, that those that draw near to God, Jesus is able to pull in with complete security. He's able to save to the uttermost since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus lives to intercede on your behalf and in order that you would be drawn to the Father and be pulled in. All those who are called will come. I will, I will in no way lose those who have been given to me, Jesus said. No one can pluck you out of the hand of the Father. Jesus is, is deliberately and sincerely and effectually praying for you to endure to the end. So let me just connect the dots here. You have the Holy Spirit of God dwelling in you, praying for you here on earth. And you have God the Son interceding for you from his throne in heaven. If we ever just got a glimpse of how the Trinity was praying for us, we would never fear anything again. He intercedes for the saints. This is important. He intercedes for the saints. Biblically, saints are ordinary people who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, who trust in Jesus for salvation. And as a result, the Spirit dwells within them. That's a saint. You believe in Jesus, you've been born again, the Bible calls you a saint. 
the glorious promise of the Spirit's intercession is for the faithful. Verse 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good for those who are called according to his purpose. I want you to notice the the connection between verses 27 and 28, the word and. This is not an isolated, standalone verse. And my wife reminded me this week that really we need to connect verse 28 to what follows in verses 29 through 30, and we will do that next week. But this is not an isolated text. It's connected to verse 27. The Spirit intercedes for the saints, and God works all things together for good for those who love God. So biblically, a saint is not a special class of Christian, but neither is a saint a person who had a one-time experience at some point in his or her life that has zero residual effect years later. A saint is not someone that is a special class, but nor is a saint someone who made a one-time decision, walk the aisle, pray a prayer, some kind of religious experience years or decades ago. What is a saint? A saint is someone who loves God. When you trust in Christ, you recognize his sacrifice as the epitome of God's love. That's what happens. The sacrifice of Christ is the demonstration of God's love. Romans 5.8. God demonstrated his love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There, there is nothing that rises above this. Nothing that God can do for you that would add to this as a demonstration of God's love. When you come to trust in Christ as your Savior, you recognize that Christ's sacrifice for you is a full demonstration of God's love for you. And simultaneously, you receive the Holy Spirit as a seal, or from last week, verse 23, first fruit. The Holy Spirit is the first fruit. He dwells within every born-again believer. Romans 8, 9. And he fills us with God's love. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And so you recognize that Jesus' death on the cross is the epitome of God's love, and then the Holy Spirit pours into your heart the the love of God. And so you feel the love of God because you are filled with the love of God. And then something happens in response. 1 John 4, 19 says, we love because he first loved us. So we come, conversion, biblical conversion 
is recognizing that God loves us and demonstrated that through Jesus Christ. He gives us the Holy Spirit who fills our hearts with the love of God, and because he loved us, we then respond with love toward God and toward other people. All who believe the gospel, who trust in Christ and his atoning work on the cross, know the love of God. And because they know the love of God and because they've been filled by the Holy Spirit, the result is that then we turn and love God in response. Christians love God. It's not something that we force. It's not a task that we fulfill. It's a statement of fact. Christians love God. It's like driving to a mountain. Over the summer, I had the privilege of flying out to Seattle to do a wedding there. And part of the, the thing was we're going to do the wedding at the mountain. And I've seen mountains before. I've skied down mountains before. But something about this mountain was captivating. And as we drove to the, through the foothills, the winding roads, we would catch the peak. I remember the, the first time that we, we caught the peak. And we stopped because it was captivating. Like we're going to this mountain, but here we stop at a distance to observe. It was majestic. Then we, we wind our way around and then we get to the, the base of the mountain and we look up and it's like we're drawn. We, we start out on the hike and we're walking. It's pretty steep and we're like, man, is this... We're really going to keep going, but here we go. We keep, it's like it was pulling us upward. And we just kept wanting to go further and further and further and further. And every time we went further and, and, and we made a turn, and we saw something more spectacular. We responded in awe and wonder to creation. How much more do we respond to the God of creation? He reveals himself through his word. He, he pours his love into our hearts and it is not a task for us to respond in love to God. It is a response. Christians love God. And 1 John 5.3 says that love is, well, I'm gonna you can look at 1 John 5, 3. I, I don't have it memorized. Love is obedience. You spell love for God, O-B-E-Y. Obey. We love God. We obey God. We live our lives submitted to God. That's what Christians do. He changes our affections. Because for the first time in your life, when you are converted by the Holy Spirit, you recognize that you are truly and fully and unconditionally loved by the one who made you. And your response is love.
You feel the love of God in your heart. It draws you closer to him. You desire to commune with him. You read the Bible, not because it's a duty, but because it's a delight. Because you're learning about this God who loves you and called you according to his purposes. And you're like, how could it be that God has called me a sinner, a wretched man that I am to be his child and and given the benefits of his son as a co-heir with Christ, how can that be possible? But you know it's true because the Holy Spirit bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God. And so you're drawn closer and closer and closer in communion with the Lord. Paul began this verse with, and we know, verse 28, and we know. This is arguably one of the most quoted and perhaps misquoted or misapplied verses in the entire Bible. We know it, we know Romans 8, 28, but do we understand it? Do we get it? What does Paul mean when he says, all things work together for good? Well, let's start by saying all things means all things. Good and bad, everything. God works everything together for our good. He he works it all together. There's nothing that slips by. There's nothing in your life that's ever happened to you that has slipped by. Imagine, is that how you want this to be? I, I want you to think about the alternative here. I know that some hard things have happened to you. And, and, and the, the thought that God would permit these things is difficult, but I want you to, to, to ask yourself, do you want to worship a God that is somehow unable to, to rule and reign over the universe? That somehow he didn't know the suffering that was coming? I think that would be far worse. There is nothing that evades God's purposes. There's nothing that slips by him. There's nothing that catches him unaware. There's nothing that God does not use to achieve his purposes in this life, in the world and in your life particular. Now, I think right off the bat, some low-hanging fruit, I think what we would all agree with, what we can all acknowledge is that this verse does not say that everything is going to feel good. Right? Paul does not say everything's going to feel good. If you're those who love God, everything's going to feel good. I think we can all acknowledge that. That seems like low hanging fruit to me. We can all just chop that off right away. Nor does it even say that it's all going to work out in the end. That if you just if you just have enough faith, if you just wait long enough that eventually it's gonna work out the way you want it to. It doesn't say that. Now look, this, this verse is a personal verse. It's personal to me, it's personal to you. It ought to provide personal hope. I consider myself part of those who love God. This is a promise to me. And if you love God, it's a promise to you. But I think we miss something when we read this verse strictly through a personal lens. 
Let me give you a historical example. This past week, October 6th, was like the 487th anniversary, almost 500 years since a man named William Tyndale was strangled to death at the stake. He was tied up at a stake, firewood beneath him, and they wrapped a rope around his neck and they strangled him to death and then they burned his body. October 6, 1536, William Tyndale was strangled to death at the stake. What was his crime? Believing that the Bible and the Bible alone is the authoritative source of Christian living. Not, not, not the teaching of the church, not the traditions of man, but scripture alone is the authoritative so, uh, source for your life. And believing that you should have a Bible in your own language. Tyndale translated the scriptures of the New Testament and then the Old Testament from Greek and Hebrew into English. And he was charged with heresy for it. He was brutally martyred and his body was desecrated. Now let's be honest. The way that most people approach Romans 8, 28 the Lord did not work that out for Tyndale's good. The way most of us read Romans 8, 28, that did not work together for good for Tyndale. I cannot imagine that William Tyndale thought that it was good that he was stripped in public and tied to a stake and strangled to death knowing that his body would be desecrated publicly. I, I can't see how that would rise to any normal definition of good. Yet God's word does not lie. And so we must agree that it was worked together for good. Just not in the way that Tyndale would have desired Tyndale did not think that it was a good thing. I can't imagine that he thought it was a good thing to die at the stake. I have no doubt that he was an honorable man, that he was honored to suffer for Christ, that he was a man of conviction. His death proved that he was a man of conviction. But I don't think that he would stand here and say, yep, that was good for me. Though it was not a good thing for Tyndale to die at the stake, his willingness to endure suffering was worked together for good. Right now, William Tyndale is reclining with Jesus in paradise. And many, if not most, of those who burned his body are themselves in the flames of hell. Ultimately, we know it's going to be good. 
But I think there's a greater promise here than just that. Less than 500 years ago, a man was strangled to death so that you would have an English Bible. Do you read it? Do you thank the Lord for it? I do. I thank the Lord for something that cost a man his life. Here's my point. When we consider our lives, and especially as we consider how Romans 8.28 applies to our lives, we have to rise above egocentrism. Egocentrism treats as if it's the highest and best thing that God would give us what we think is good. When we read Romans 8, 28, from an egocentric perspective, what we imagine is that at some point, God is going to give me what I think is good, that it's all about me, that my suffering is going to eventually turn into my good. But it didn't for William Tyndale. You've heard it said, no pain, no gain, right? We usually think about that in terms of athletes or exercise, no pain, no gain. But what's implied is that if you, if, you, if you endure the pain, then you will reap the gain. That's what is implied in that statement. But what if your pain is another person's providential gain? Are you okay with that? Are you okay if the Lord works in your suffering such that the primary benefactor is not you, but someone else? Are you okay if his purpose for your pain is to bless another person? Let me give you a personal example. I gave you a historical example. Let me give you a personal example. Then, of course, we'll go to a biblical example, a personal example. You folks have gone out of your way this year uh, and this month for pastor appreciation. Very thankful. You have demonstrated that you appreciate me and the other elders of our church. I know that I can say that many of you thank the Lord for bringing me here. I know that you've shown that, and I'm grateful for that. I'm blessed to be your pastor. But here's the reality I am who I am and where I am because of intense suffering. The last four years of my life have been some of the hardest, but they have made me a better pastor, they've made me more sensitive, more empathetic. They've humbled me. Many of you don't know who I was four years ago. You've come and you said, thank you, Lord, for my pastor. 
I am who I am because of suffering. We step back. I'm a Texan. And I dwell among Midwesterners. How do we get here? Suffering. (laughs) Because God did not work out the way I wanted him to work it out. Created conditions where we, Kelly and I would say, it is right for us to leave our family, friends, home, everything we know and move across the country. You thank the Lord for me and I'm, I'm, I thank the Lord for you, but I'm here because of suffering. If we step one step back further, Kelly and I endured every, per, uh, every parent's worst nightmare, the loss of a, of a child. And it was out of the loss of the child that I was saved and called into ministry. You thank the Lord for me, and I thank the Lord for you, but I am here because of suffering. Now, I can genuinely say that I am grateful for what God has done. Though I did not see it as a good thing to endure suffering in in years before, I do see it as good now. I see it in part I'm certain there are things that I don't see. But the things that I do see, I see as good, not only for me, but also for you. And so I told the kids this past Wednesday night that if I could go back, I was sitting down there with the kids in kids' ministry, and I looked at these kids, and I had one of those moments, one of those proud pastor moments, and I'm looking at these kids, and I I, I said to them, if I could go back, and undo all the things that the Lord used to get me here, I would not do that. He has made me your pastor through pain and suffering. And it is okay with me because it is good, not only for me, but also for you. Now, I use my own story to show that sometimes the Lord allows us to suffer for other people's benefit. Recall from 8.22, Romans 8.22, the illustration that Paul used to describe the the suffering in, in birth pangs. I asked you to keep that in mind. Remember, we're suffering in the, in the pains of childbirth A woman groans in pain of childbirth for hours, sometimes for days, to speak nothing of the fact that you carry this child for nine months. You're you're groaning for hours and hours. You're suffering in order to give life to another human being. Now, it's not completely selfless. You're gonna love that child, and that child's a blessing to you. But at 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 the most basic sense, Moms, you suffered in order to give life to another human being. So we understand it conceptually, this idea that my suffering might primarily be someone else's benefit. We get it conceptually. But practically, we wish it were not so. 
Now, childbirth is one thing. But enduring hardship so that God can use me in someone else's life, that's a different thing. That's more difficult to accept. Sometimes the Lord will work everything together for good in ways that you never know are good. To bless people that you will never meet. To work in ways that you will never fully understand. He's working in your life through the suffering of other people right now. You and I are benefactor of William Tyndale's tenacity even unto death because you have an English Bible in your hands that I hope you read. He's working in your life through suffering of other people and he's working in your suffering for the good of other people. He's using your suffering to purify your faith and to bolster your testimony so that someone else may benefit from it. He's allowing hardship to refine you and test you and purify you so that someone else who you may never meet this side of heaven is impacted. Are you okay with that? Are you okay if the purpose of God in your suffering is that someone else gains from it? Someone else's life is changed by it. Can we not be okay with that? Shouldn't we be okay with that? After all, are we not the benefactors of one man's pain and sacrifice? Are we not following in the shadows of the Son of God who took up his cross and called us to follow him by taking up our cross? Are we not the recipients of unearned grace that cost Jesus everything? This takes us back to where we began in verse 26. The Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. Oftentimes in our suffering, we get egocentric in our prayers. Our prayers tend to revolve around us. We tend to tell the Lord what we think he ought to do, how he ought to work this out, We come to him informing him of our desires instead of asking him to help us submit to his will. It's in these times that we're invited to call upon the Holy Spirit who helps us pray when we do not know what to pray. And we trust him to pray according to the will of God. We need to remind ourselves of God's love for us, which was demonstrated by the cross of Christ. And in our suffering, respond with love for God. 
In our submission to God's will, we are most emulating our Savior, who on the night that he was betrayed, cried out to the Lord, Father, not my will, but yours be done. As we turn now to a time of reflection prior to communion, I would ask you to ask the Lord help you submit to his perfect will like Jesus. Can you do that? Can you say, Lord, help me? Help me to be okay if the reason that I'm enduring hardship is for someone else's gain. Help me be okay with that. Help me submit to your will, your perfect will in my life. I would encourage you to seek his strength to be okay with that. One thing is certain, this pain will come to an end. One thing is for certain, there will be a a point in time in which you look back over all of your life and you will see everything was worked together for good and you will be okay with it. The question is, can you be okay with enduring hardship for God's glory and others' good? Let's pray. Lord, we love you and we thank you for Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. We thank you that you give us the hope that you are currently at work. You're at work in our lives to bring about good for us, not only in our suffering, but in the suffering of other people. And Lord, help us to rise above egocentrism and to see that sometimes you work in someone else's life through our suffering. You allow us to endure hardship in order to bless someone else. Lord, because we love you, And because the Spirit is with us and helps us, we know that we can endure. And we pray, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks so much for watching online. I hope that this message has inspired you to greater faith, has encouraged you, maybe convicted or challenged you. We're grateful to be able to provide this content to you online, live and on demand. If you haven't done so already, Follow us on Instagram, like us on Facebook, subscribe to us on YouTube so that we can get this content right to you as soon as we upload it. But you know, we believe that as a follower of Jesus Christ, that you need the body of Christ. You need the local church. And so if you're in the Quad Cities, let me invite you to personally join us in person for our gatherings on Sundays at 9 a.m. and 1040. If you're not in the Quad Cities, I want to encourage you to go find a local church that teaches the Bible, that serves the community, that loves Jesus, that gives grace. Well, hey, thanks again for watching, and we hope that you were blessed.